0: Welcome back to Sinnos, everyone. We're here again. Hope you all had a great summer definitely needed a break, but I'm ready to go and we're going to have some great episodes that we're going to be recording in the next few months. Back with an awesome guest. You know, one of my first interviews and recordings was done with Dr. Stuart McGill, a friend of mine. He He was my master's mentor at the University of Waterloo. It was a fantastic conversation getting to know Stu. And you know, Stu talks a lot about spiny things in the low back on many different podcasts, but to just have that sort of human-to-human conversation was something special. But I have his protege. I have this guy who is the master clinician for the company, BackFit Pro, is their lead instructor, Dr. Edward Cambridge. Ed and I crossed paths a very short amount of time at the University of Waterloo. Never really had a chance to get to know him, but really looking forward to having him today. Ed, Dr. Edward Cambridge. Thanks for joining us today NT T looking forward to the chat today.
1: Rupesh, well, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's humbled and honored anytime you get asked to do one of these uh, interviews. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: That's awesome. Well thanks for thanks for joining us again. You know, I was thinking about your role at Back the Pro and I, I've been following I mean, Stu, somebody I always follow, whether I once I left the field and, and continue to follow that, and when I saw like sort of how back for pro continued to evolve, and I saw that you were getting involved, and all of a sudden you became their lead instructor. It made me think if like, and I don't think did you did you study at the University of Waterloo? I know you did your PhD there, but did you do some of your other degrees there at all? Just or? my graduate work, so I okay.
1: started in the masters and fast tracked to the PhD, but not none of my undergrad work.
0: Okay, so if you're if you're an undergrad student at the University of Waterloo doing that kin program, if you took if you take Stu's course. He's somebody everyone's just like looking up to, right? Is like the guy you want to work with at some point. And mm-hmm. to like to ever think that you could actually work side by side with him on a daily basis, you know, that's possible through a graduate degree. But I, I would imagine many of his grad students, I was one of them, you were one of them, many grad students wouldn't think that that the journey would continue where you actually get to work with him on a day-to-day basis let alone be a part of his company and now have his full trust that you're one of his lead instructors so it's like it's amazing to see you as that person you know on that journey and and I just think I don't think people understand that you you know just again Stu's like this he has this kind of aura about him at the University of Waterloo and especially in Kin and especially around the field that he's he um, you know has been a master in and so um i feel like it's a high honor that you that you've been able to get that spot but just obviously an incredible amount of work must have come your way from your end and so i really want to hear more about that but tell me about like you know as you kind of got to work with Stu, and then once he's like hey ed you're you're my guy i want you to be the lead instructor what was what was all that like
1: yeah well that's a big bite to chew off of and and i share your awe of Stu. in fact I had sort of a third-party experience with him. Two of his previous PhDs, uh, Dr. Kim Ross and Dr. Dave Bresnick, mm. were at the chiropractic college teaching, and that's how I got introduced really to Stu. Um, it, he, they always talked about their mentor and how much he did for them and right. how much he meant to them and changed their careers. And So I already had this massive image of Stu before I ever met him or really knew who he was. So I can remember I had to go to the uh, university, drive down from Toronto to down the 401 to Waterloo and have lunch with him to find out. That was our uh, graduate student interview. It was a quick meeting at about 11.30. Was that at the grad uh, house? Well, it was in his office first. Oh, okay. Um, I don't think I've ever had so many cotton balls in my mouth. <laughs> and he's asking me questions that I'm trying to answer. And, yeah. oh, I was just, I was on pins and needles. My palms were sweating and the whole bit because I knew of him but didn't know him. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember then having to go have lunch. And, you know, I was so nervous, just... Uh, having lunch with him and the conversation continued which was, i thought was a good thing you know we weren't sitting there in complete silence we were mm. getting on quite well but uh from that yeah then going off to the to the furthest extreme of of being his uh, his lead instructor um and uh continuing on that journey has been just uh, a dream come true to be honest with you and sometimes i still pinch myself like am i really doing this um do i you know now i have conversations with him on a fairly regular basis and and we keep in touch and um, we're constantly checking in on how the backfit pros team is doing and and whatnot so it's it's incredible experience for me and no I I didn't sign up for any of this to be honest with you it's a bit of serendipitous luck that um, it all folded together the way that it did Uh, I thought I was just going to go and get a PhD and do some research, and this whole new clinical training world opened up to me that uh, I really didn't know what to expect.
0: Were you hoping to do some academia after that PhD, or what was the plan? How, because you had a you were a doctor of chiropractic medicine at that time, right? And yeah,
1: so I, I did my um, undergrad at uh, at Brock University, and yeah. I had kind of an interesting run in with biomechanics there that's when i really got passionate about biomechanics mm. we had this really tough prof and uh, he'll love me saying this story really tough prof and you either hated this guy or liked him because if you worked hard you liked him because you mm. got rewarded well and if you didn't like him you, you did abysmally um sounds a little bit like class, <laughs> classic yeah yeah so um anyway uh, i decided i was gonna like this guy and uh and, and did really well in his course and then um, became one of his undergraduate helpers in the biomechanics lab. And I remember we were having this conversation about, you know, his name is Dr. David Gabriel. And I said, uh, David, I don't know if I want to be a, a doctorate in mm. a clinical field or a researcher. I'm, I'm mm. really struggling. And I remember him saying, Ed, do you wonder why milk bags are opaque? And I thought for a minute, and I took the question at the time fairly literally. So right. I said, well no I don't and he said well do you like people and I said well yeah of course I do Uh, I love people (laughs) and he said well I think you should be a clinician and that was kind of it but funny enough and as I reflect on the conversation after I didn't take this away at the time it wasn't one sentence before I did ask him so why are milk bags opaque Mm. and he tells me the story and and I haven't fact checked him on this so I'm taking him for his word Yeah. But he said, well, back in the day when they brought milk in glass bottles and set them down uh, outside the house, the uh, ultraviolet rays from the sun would hit the glass, neutralize the B vitamins, and Mm. people were getting B vitamin deficiencies. Mm. So they thought, well, we better put this in an opaque container so um, it's not exposed to sunlight. So anyway, that's why your milk comes in (laughs) opaque containers now, according to David Gabriel. And it didn't dawn on me that I was in both of those camps. I I Mm. enjoyed people, but I also was quite curious about a lot of things. So long story short, I, I went to chiropractic college and then met three PhDs in biomechanics there, two trained by Stu, and then one trained in the United States and worked with them in the lab and did a little bit more undergraduate research there and published a paper and then got really excited and decided, hey, I, I'm all in. I'm gonna go to Waterloo, I'm gonna look up this guy named Stu McGill mm-hmm. and uh, see if he'll take me on. And like I said, that meeting, I actually saved, after that meeting at the grad house, Stu called me up, he got my answering machine and left me a message that I was accepted into the master's yeah. program. I'd left that message on my answering machine until I moved out of, my place in toronto so it was, yeah. it was on there for a good three months and uh played it a few times
0: man i know the i know the feeling i know the feeling of going to the grad house with Stu too that's his that's that was his place he loved uh taking people there and whether it be lab outings or whatever but yeah i remember when i got that acceptance into the master's program with him i i, I did it like an undergrad some undergrad work with him and then um when i applied over it was just it was just a thrilling experience to to do that um with uh with what you're doing now, do you have the same sort of interest that he has in like on the high performance side like is that something that you enjoy working with or do you s- do you like to work more on sort of um i don't know if it's like the everyday patient or th- i know you i know you i know back yeah. i know you folks get the worst patients regardless on on where they lie in terms of their level of activity, but um I know Stu has this real deep interest in performance and training and that sort of thing
1: yeah and and my background which i'm now sort of ashamed to admit is I, when i was a student at uh, cmcc i wondered like this guy's so big in back pain
0: mm.
1: what on earth does he like hang around in gyms for and and what's he doing with all these you know athletes and yeah you know i i realized quite quickly um i'm happy to say that um i, I was so wrong on that and everything that we've gain from working with and understanding how athletes do the thing goes right back into the clinic with, you know, a patient who can't um, get out of a chair without pain or off the toilet without pain and, and, and suffers on a daily basis with the most routine things. The coaching mm-hmm. strategies are often some kind of a hybrid or, or um, morph of something that we've learned from working with athletes. So. In fact, just this morning, uh, I was seeing a patient who was—I um, don't want to give too much away—but mm. they were a Canadian junior champ in uh, Olympic uh, powerlifting. Yeah. Sorry, Olympic lifting. Yeah. So I do have curiosity about how they train and and what they're doing. And then, of course, um, similar to Stu, all of them still have a component of back pain. Mm. Um, not always disabling them. In fact, um, the young fellow that came to see me today is like, you know, a lot of people don't take me seriously because, you know, my back pain is only there when I'm going for peak performance. But what you learn about some of these guys who are in the gym setting records and, and in any sport, really, their 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 passion, uh, their activities of daily living are their passion. Mm. Um, it defines them and who they are. So, you know, I can't even imagine how you would diminish someone like that by saying, well, you know, you really only have this problem when you're at an elite level. Like, you know, you should be thankful that you can do all the things that you can do. And it's just so off-putting that he looks around at his peer group and says, well, you know, no, no, my peers have this problem. So mm-hmm. there's got to be some kind of solution that I can find. So cracking into cases like that, yeah, is a lot of fun. Um, and, and a big responsibility, too, because at the end of the day, you've got to get them out of pain, but also performing again. Um, it's not just one half the equation.
0: So on that, what would you say is a, is a big difference from patients that you work with who are high-performing athletes versus those who are, you know, just the, the average person? But also, but then the back pain is at a similar level, you know, they're both experiencing this debilitating, you know, lifestyle and, and pain what would you say is are, are, are the differences between those kinds of patients?
1: That's a really good question, <laughs> Um I'm not so, so sure that there's a lot of difference between the patients. Mm. Um, there's definitely a difference between the approach and maybe the approach that I take with an athlete and an non-athlete, and there's certainly a different skill set from the clinical world. I mean, this poor kid at... I say kid, he was 20, well, I don't want to give his age away, I don't want to, but in his early 20s, Mm. so he's no longer a junior national athlete, but in his early 20s, and, um, you know, had been to 15 clinicians. I was the 15th, Mm. and I looked him straight in the eye and said, I hope to heck that I am the 15th of 15 clinicians, Um, because it's not just a clinical problem, it's also a functional mechanical problem, and a lot of clinicians just treat the pain without mm-hmm. treating the function, and that gets them some results. At the highest level, though, it doesn't cut it more often than not. Mm-hmm. You've got to train the dysfunction out of the the system, and it didn't take me long, unfortunately, I was looking at him to understand why he had the injury presentations that he had, and and what we were going to do about them. Now, putting that all into action took uh, a few hours, and he's coming back uh, at the end of the week for another session to uh, iron out some more movement patterns and, and some of his sports-specific training. So, yeah, It's, it's I, a bigger job for me, but I don't know that the people are that different. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of us at the end of the day, if we boil it down, are, are similar.
0: I was thinking, yeah, that's interesting to hear. I mean, I was thinking maybe like the awareness from like body awareness for, from somebody who's in a high-performing athlete versus someone who's just the average person. Maybe the higher-performing athlete might have higher body awareness. But then you're telling me like somebody, the average person, again, maybe has gone through 15 people. At that point, you're probably pretty damn aware of what's going on. Well, not maybe what's going on, but more so just – how things are are lying within your body right like if you're gonna ask Mm. some questions they could probably give you some really specific pinpoint things or or if you're telling them hey do you feel this here or that like they probably are very hyper aware at that point um i was i was also thinking maybe about the motivation like do you see a different level of motivation or drive from those higher performing athletes because again that's just the world they live in um or but maybe the pain is so debilitating for the average person that they're just as motivated i don't know
1: it's a mixed bag and it depends their sport differences as well, yeah. but it depends like a high performing CEO that has back pain that's preventing him from maximizing his job performance mm. is every bit as motivated as a high level athlete that's good point. Um, it's not the, the physical demand of their job necessarily although they don't realize it is, it actually is mm. um, it's, it, it can be every bit as, as Um, motivating factor so people are people and you got to peel them back on the individual I I I don't find camps of highly motivated or or unmotivated um, people and and I try not to prejudge anyone's motivation before seeing them Um, I've had and and back to your point on on motor awareness and and whether or not they're in tune with their body Mm -hmm. there's some Phenomenal athletes and my experience goes back my my clinical experience with Stu is shared for three years So yeah before he ever sent me a patient. I saw every patient in our old lab with him So okay, he you know that was our, our Wednesday he said you yeah. know clear your schedule and you're coming with me every Wednesday and we're gonna see patients together and, mm. and for the first two years I just sat and was a fly in the wall and it was the best experience ever Mm. I didn't have to be hyper focused on the patient I could watch how Stu interacted with the patient and just see the whole clinical perspective from a a third person's perspective Mm. and then he started bringing me in and asking me okay well what do you think about this and and the questions started to come faster and faster and the influence okay well Ed why don't you go down that logic And, Mm. and then it became okay Ed uh why don't you start booking some of these consults in? Because I've taught you, I think, more than enough to get you to get you going. And that was after three years of watching each and every patient with him. So I had a tremendous clinical experience mm. during my PhD that I never signed up for. But boy, was I a lucky beneficiary of. Yeah, so.
0: and it, I, like that that experience in itself. Like I don't think many would have gotten if, or if any in that lab and so what, what did you what have you in your approach now like, like I've seen I've seen Stu kind of do his magic how have you differed from your approach compared to what Stu does now
1: um, we do essentially the same three hour assessment mm.
0: um, stylistically though do you find yourself maybe like being a little different in different ways or
1: oh sure there's there's definitely nuances and differences yeah um but there would be from any person to person but um i think he would be the first one to say that um i i think he would say this too i don't want to speak for him but um he's probably got as close to a clone uh out of me as as uh out of anyone, I think mm. um, there's another there's another great clinician and instructor with our group. That's Joel Proskowitz in mm. in England, and um, I think the three of us are pretty much on the same path. But you know, we've, we're training master clinicians all over the place,
0: okay.
1: and um, a lot of the training for the um, certification process is through us. But then once mm. they get to the master clinician. They work with Joel and I as well as Stu, and and we are trying to fill the need for more people. So, mm. um, you know, there's there's more of us, and we're we're doing everything we can to grow more capacity, because the demand is is there. Um, and just on a on a human side, the thing that that kills me is when you hear these stories about how many clinicians, like this young guy this morning, who had mm. seen fifteen clinicians, and I think at his age, in his early 20s, how is that even possible? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- there's, not, there's not a great deal of difference between how we operate. The three-hour assessment is laid out very similarly, and from working with him on my PhD for eight years um, and watching every patient he had for three years, um, an untrained eye would have a hard time telling the difference between our assessments
0: yeah um if you're hearing footsteps above me that's just my four and a half year old daughter jumping so if there's some thuds you know folks no are problem. hearing some thuds that's what that's all about it's i hard can't to wait edit. till
1: i hear my five and six year old so far knock <laughs> on wood it's been okay yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. um that's really cool uh, did you did you have back pain growing up like was there a link here or what, how did you what was sort of the connection for you to want to get into the like to get into the space
1: yeah i definitely um that uh, that goes back to my high school days. I was playing yeah. on the time uh, on five volleyball teams
0: Yeah, okay. a
1: year. So I played on my school team and the club team. I played on um, a regional team for beach and a regional team for indoor. Okay, And then another city-to-city game team in, in Canada-U.S. games. And wow. um, my high school was probably the biggest beat up on me. It was on concrete floors in an old... School oh. that was built, you know, pre World War One, yeah. and uh, we played five. We practiced five days a week for a really intense short yeah, season, yeah, but yeah. it was five days a week, and um, yeah, that was that was brutal on my back. And I remember takeoff and landings just an excruciating pain. And um, my mom was had a friend who was a massage therapist, and she said, "Well, bring it in to see our our chiropractor and get an assessment." And, mm. Funny enough, my first experience with chiropractic wasn't great from a person point of view. Um, but he managed to, to to treat my SI joint well enough to get me back on the court. And at that age, I, I put up with his style of practice, which didn't really mesh with my own. Mm. Um, and the results, results, he got the results that I needed at the time. Um, so... What was your that issue? That was my exposure. Um, it mm-hmm. was a... It, it was a SI joint issue, okay. and that all that jumping and landing was causing a lot of shear on a, on mm. basically a, a very aggravated SI joint, and yeah. it, eventually it went away. It would come back every once in a while, especially yeah. with long hours sitting in lectures. Mm. Um, it's so nice not being a student anymore, um, but uh, yeah. So that was my first experience. That's how I got ex- interested in, in chiropractic, and then. My now wife, then girlfriend's father was uh, a chiropractor, hmm. and so I got to see that, you know, job from the other side. You know, when you're a kid watching like Law and Order, and you think, "Oh, I want to be a lawyer. I want to go in and argue in front of court." And then you realize when you grow up that lawyers don't really spend a lot of time in court; it's reading mm-hmm. documents and articles and whatnot. And so you really, you know, you you take the the sort of TV eye, uh Version of it, and you twist it around, and it's not so great. But um, I saw it from behind the scenes, and I thought, wow, that's that's really neat. You get to interact with people, and you're trying to help them. And those were big motivation and all factors for me wanting to be a chiropractor. And mm. you know, a few years down the road, my wife and I now both work at a, his office, and we all work together, the three of us. And cool. uh, yeah, it's it's fun. We all have what? our own specialties in the clinic, but
0: yeah. What about what about the field? Uh, what about the chiropractic field? Sort of. Um, do you think people don't quite grasp, and, and is actually maybe to the detriment? Like, and what, what what parts of the field are you just frustrated with? Like either <laughs> the teachings of it, or or because I think I think chiropractors sometimes get a bad rep, but sometimes I also feel like they. Sometimes you don't get some really good ones, right? Like I always people ask me sometimes, like. Hey, I'm nervous to go to this chiropractor. I'm like, yeah, you know, there aren't that many good ones from my experience. But sometimes you get some really good ones who have a good clinical eye. And mm-hmm. but I, I don't know. Just curious because you're obviously a chiropractor. You've been through Stu's method and all that. What's your, what's your view of the field overall?
1: Well, um, that's a good question. But to be fair, it's not unlike any health profession. And what I mean by that sure. is. Constantly when I'm doing consults, I'll be asked, um, well, I, you know, I, I've driven three hours or mm. flown from across Canada or the U.S. to come and see you, at. I need someone in my hometown. Like, can you recommend a chiropractor or a physical therapist? And I say, well, no, I can't because I don't know them. And if I don't know them, I can't recommend you. Mm-hmm. Um, truth be told, Repesh, life's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Mm. And there's some nuts in some of those. Yeah. So it's not um, bounded by professions. And I think you're right. I think the chiropractic profession has um, a reputation that, that is not totally deserved across the board, but that's an issue of funny enough cultural authority. So there's a topic for another, mm. another podcast. Physical therapy and medicine have cultural authority, so when you go to a bad MD who doesn't know that they need to order an MRI because you have a suspicious cervical spine problem that's causing balance disruption and you need to look at cervical spine and probably uh, a brain MRI as well, Mm. um, you know, you just write it off and say, well, that individual doesn't know what they're talking about or doesn't Mm -hmm. know what they're doing, but medicine as a whole isn't. because chiropractic hasn't gained cultural authority it lacks that one-off mentality and mm. people often write off the whole profession there's fantastic chiropractors out there and there's some terrible ones mm. and there's some fantastic physical therapies out there and there's some terrible ones Yeah, there's some fantastic MDs out there and there are some terrible ones mm-hmm. and unfortunately I'm biased because my patients for the most part have all seen the terrible clinicians, and I mm. can tell you, it's not uncommon for me to have a consult patient who's seen three to five chiropractors and three to five physical therapists, one or two neurologists, mm. and a spine surgeon, whether it's a neural or an orthopedic spine surgeon. And it's it's not to say that uh, I'm better than any of them, or or uh, that I'm you know uh, some kind of uh, phenom that's that's out there just you know, striking, you know, 1000% all the time. It's just, I I see the worst and I don't understand. I think I see the worst because they've been to some clinicians who've just either been too busy or burnt out and we know the healthcare crisis right now in Mm. Canada with the pandemic. I mean, those of us in the healthcare system have been talking about how the healthcare system was, you know, been pushed to the brink Prior to the pandemic,
0: mm-hmm.
1: now finally with the pandemic, the, the you know you always got to find the the shiny side to the coin. At least the whole population is now sharing in that theme and realizing that the healthcare system was pushed to the brink mm-hmm. and and nearly broke, and, and arguably it did with all the public health measures that had to shut everything down, and it was for good reason because our healthcare system couldn't handle it now. Sure do i agree with all the lockdowns no but we had to do it because mm-hmm. we didn't have a healthcare system that could sustain uh the demand so it's it's a necessity
0: for sure what what would you say is because i mean it's just mind boggling to me i mean that someone has to go through all those different specialists and and practitioners and such and you know, you hopefully over time, as you keep seeing somebody, somebody else is just they're adding a little bit more value to the situation. But like, you know, fifteen people, like, what would you say is the missing ingredient? And it's, again, it's not to. In a, I know, I, I know the Backfit Pro method is, and, and and all you folks are incredibly humble people. But like, what is that missing ingredient? Would you say that 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 comes with that approach versus or? just like is it is it an educational deficit is it the 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 training in schools is not in the like is not done the right way like what's missing for people that people can't like can't have to rely on on the backfit pro method or someone being mcgill certified which is awesome that program has been created right to kind of fill the gap but like it doesn't start with the mcgill method it starts with starting an institution right and so people are not getting that proper institutional learning and then they're having to depend on on certification afterwards, I mean, yeah, what's what's missing?
1: Fantastic question, and you're right on the ball. As uh, I recall that you were back in your master's days Rupesh. Um, what's missing is a system change. So I'll, I'll point the finger back at me, uh, okay. and I'll tell you a little clinical story of my own. So I was... Uh, Right from CMCC, I went right to work, and and for the listeners, CMCC, Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, went right from CMCC to University of Waterloo. And uh, I remember I was waiting for my license at the time. Um, My father-in-law was excited. He found out that I was working with the Stu McGill. He was, Mm -hmm. you know, beside himself. I heard him talking to me up to patients. You know, my my future son-in-law, I think I was still at that time. Um, Yeah, I was for one more year. Um. And uh, he said, okay, Ed, as soon as you get your, your documents, I've got some patients lined up, they're going to come and see you, I've been working mm-hmm. with them, but just not getting the results I want, so I'm going to send them to you. I said, fantastic, so excited, so I call up the Ontario um, Chiropractic College, which is um, the, the licensing body, and said, mm-hmm. you know, I need my license, I know they're coming through in the next little while, um, but I have patients booked, and, you know, this was on a Monday. So I bluffed a little bit and they said, Well, when are your patients I said, I've got patients booked Thursday afternoon. So I need my license number. Well, okay, we'll we'll see what we can do. Well sure enough, doesn't it come Thursday morning? Um now I obviously would have had to cancel the patients to not practice without a license, but um he would have seen them anyway. So anyway, long story short, I'm in there, this is my first day of clinic, I'm literally on the day of getting my license I'm going to see Stu Miguel. I'm like the most pumped up individual in the world right now. Like first patient out of the gate. Nobody's got to sign off on it. No, no master clinician mm-hmm. at, the, at the college. It's like, this is me. That's the only barrier between me and this patient getting better. And uh, just before I walk in with the patient, he says, oh, by the way, um, they've been a really good patient in the clinic and, and I, I know you're going to do your own assessment and an exam but we're just gonna charge them for a regular visit, but take as long as you need, and they know that you're gonna probably take a bit longer than I would mm-hmm. on, a, on a usual visit. So um, his visits at the time were probably um, between five and 10 minutes. Okay. I spent almost an hour with
0: mm-hmm. the
1: patient. I did a, an assessment, I did some provocative testing. Um, I told them what I thought was going on and why um, they had a certain amount of success but weren't getting over the hump Mm. to get off the dependency and need for ongoing treatment at the current interval that they were at. And if they would do this plan and then I show them the whole plan and walk them through it, they could probably go, you know, a much longer time between treatment intervals and, and, you know, be able to get out and enjoy life and all that good stuff without Mm. being dependent on sort of the system and I remember this like it was yesterday I looked down and I said okay well that's what I want you to do and I was sort of wrapping up my last sentence and she looked at me and said Ed isn't there a pill I could take instead of doing all this work and I thought that patient had no value for what I was doing and one of the reasons was they weren't Being asked to have any Mm -hmm. value for what I was doing. They were seen as a regular follow up visit, which is, you know, um, about a third of the cost of what we charge for an exam in the office. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that. We're spending more time in an exam, a lot longer time. Mm -hmm. And um, she just had no value for the treatment. So, clinicians nowadays, come back and answer your question, which is the same as I was, are stuck in a situation where, you know, the gal down the street on this side and the guy down the street on this side charge X dollars. Mm. And it's hard for patients to know that there's more value and more price. Now, we always say you buy it, you pay for what you get. Right. Um, But the system is designed that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of inertia keeping it where it is. It's hard to move the bar up. It's hard to elevate everyone's game around you so that you can charge more and spend more time with patients. But that, to answer your question in a roundabout way, is what I decided I had to do. I had to change the way that I practice. And that's when Stu's work and all of understanding how he spent three hours with a patient um, made sense to me. Like, yeah. it was just, I'm gonna get more out of it, they're gonna get more out of it, and we're gonna get something accomplished. So. It's a product of the system. Uh, to be honest with you and to answer your, your extra questions around that area, I think CMCC, which is the Canadian Chiropractic College, is doing an amazing job of education. And you know, I say that full well having no relation with the faculty, but knowing who they are. They have three of Dr. McGill's graduate students mm. um, over the time two PhDs and another top-notch master student, mm. teaching for them in biomechanics. They have PhDs in all the respective areas teaching all the basics and foundational sciences, and then excellent clinicians. But then the student equipped with all this knowledge goes out into society where this establishment has said, pigeonholes you into a box, and it's very difficult to break out. One mm. of the things that allowed me to break out was being associated with Stu, because right away, that immediately elevated my game Mm. and you know with you know that old saying of the superheroes Mm. with more responsibility and more powers more responsibility so it goes hand in hand and it's it's difficult to change the entire system but that's what you guys have to do in in health policy
0: yeah you know you uh, yeah uh, when you brought up the example of you know someone seeking treatment and there's one clinician here, one clinician there, and maybe one clinician charges a little bit more. Let's just say, even say if an MD or whatever, I think though people have a right to expect that. That, you know, I know, M- I think people view just general and M- general MDs um, as more than triagers, but really, like for the most part, they're really for the most part triagers right like they should be pushing people to different specialists i mean obviously there's basic things that they should and are completely capable of doing but like even from an msk a musculoskeletal perspective right like i think people try to think that okay at least there's some basic things that they should know about you know msk issues and i know i'll give a little quick personal example i remember uh i was uh i was walking home one day and then all of a sudden, my, my, um, my thoracic ribs just, like, seized and contracted, right? And it was, like, something different. And and so uh, it was just odd to me. And, and I remember talking to my dad, and he was, like, worried about my kidney or something like that. And, and I was, like, no, it's not that. And he was, like, he was, like, just go see an MD. I was, like, it's going to be a waste of time. Like, I know this is going to be a waste of time. The guy didn't even, like, physically palpate me or anything. Like, he just, like, go take, you know. NSAID or some pain medication and you'll be fine. I go to a, a chiropractor who I, res- who I respect here in the city of Edmonton and and he's like, you got a subluxed rib, man. And uh, he's like, it's not rotating or whatever and, and he adjusted and it was, it was fine. Um, you know, whether that was the case or not, but it just I think people expect some basic level of knowledge and service that is actually like true. And time and time again, whenever I heard, whether it be Stu in his class or whenever I've talked to him, he always amazes me with like the cases that come to him and be like, you know, how is how is this not seen before, right? Whether, mm-hmm. I remember he told me a case of where somebody was uh, I actually, was I, was. I think it was at Waterloo and somebody had walked by my grad office, right? And he was completely almost at 90 degrees and he knew he was walking with Stu. And then Stu told me after that this person, um, you know what the reason was is because there was a tumor or something pressing against his hip flexor and how could you not see that on a basic scan? Like, you know, it's so. There's some basic things that I think people expect clinicians to have, which I feel like are, some clinicians are just failing people overall, right? Like, I understand there's different specialties and expertise levels and all that. That that makes sense to me. But there should be some basic things that can avoid that. That can then prevent people from having to go and see a really really pricey practitioner. Especially there are many folks who don't have that kind of money to unfortunately, spend on three-hour assessments as much as you know they should be done that way, right?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And to defend um, medical doctors, mm. um, one of the interests I had when I was at CMCC was actually in a, in a group that we called ourselves the DCMD Club. Okay. And what we were trying to do is connect bridges. Or it was mm. called Building Bridges. And we were connecting DCs to MDs, and then it expanded to all um, other health disciplines nice. as well. And it was amazing. One of our profs at the chiropractic college was actually faculty cross-appointed at U of T. Mm. And this may come as a shock to you, but um, they were given three hours of musculoskeletal (laughs) in-class education. One of those hours was dedicated to low back pain. Sounds about right. So to the defense of the medical doctors, it's not their area um yet it is the second highest reason someone presents to their family physician the highest being upper respiratory yeah and they have to know to their defense so much about so many things that i personally know only the surface area enough to as you say triage and recommend and refer out for in this in the suspicion of some kind of sinister underlying pathology um they could do better job of having a better baseline msk knowledge but um, there's a lot going on that they have to be responsible for the whole field of um, um, genetics and medicine is taking off like crazy there's so much information that we don't cover at chiropractic college because we Mm -hmm. are focused on msk uh, and and, uh, that educational bracket that know we have differential diagnosis to rule out tumors and pathologies and all those kinds of things but that that's where our education on that stops it's identifying it and ruling it out and sending it out when we need to and And, that's
0: fair and and I I appreciate that Uh, if I could I mean if I could just play devil's advocate for a second I mean I think there's though like basic anatomy you know what I mean like just how muscles pull on each other like I mean I don't expect an MD who maybe doesn't have like a kin background or something like that to know exactly all the muscles and how they connect and like how they pull and 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 everything like that but I mean it's it's not that difficult I remember I remember in, in one class uh, uh Stu pulled up a picture of like a bodybuilder with his glutes right and he's like what's what's the primary function of this muscle right and everyone thinks the glute is a is a hip extensor right and but you look at those striations and like, no, it's an external rotator. Right. And it's like it doesn't take much. Right. You know what I mean? And and like the anatomy tells us so much about what's going on and just understanding that could be could just help in terms of whether it be direction on who to send somebody to or just understanding the problem. Right. There's not even that sometimes approach of really wanting to understand what's happening and even that could give a lot of comfort to patients. Right. Is it's just that md spending that time to just understand that person's problem and even if they can't get to the root source but at least um that understanding and then applying some basic like anatomy and knowledge could go a long way because it doesn't take much
1: well and just to double down on on my perspective yeah. um one of the cool things at cmcc is they they do hire The best that they could find from wherever they could find them from Mm. and and that includes across the world so our anatomy department was actually filled with medical doctors with phds in anatomy Mm. so they had phds in anatomy that they'd done some kind of novel discovery and part of their thesis and work but were also medical doctors usually foreign trained Mm. some of them fantastic Clinical experience in their own countries came over to Canada, couldn't get hired into our system because they weren't recognized for whatever reason. And selfishly, we were the benefactor of them because they were phenomenal. Mm. And they had said, You know, one of them got to know me quite well, and he said, Ed, you know, I love teaching at CMCC even more than other medical schools that I've taught at because, you know, in medicine, they flip the body, the cadaver. Um, front side up, just to open up the skin, have a look, flip it over for two weeks, look at the back muscles in the same way, mm. remove the skin, have a look at the muscles, and then flip them over, open them all the way up, and now spend all their time internally on all the organs. Yeah, And it's a product of, again, how much they need to know about all the other things. And so, to go back to your first question about triage, um, I think, I think they're underplaying their own expertise, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah.
1: I think you could have nurses and nurse practitioners being the pre- triages of the system, yeah. and have you know, the MD, even the general practitioner, as one of those triage outlets for yeah. a whole host of uh, categories of issues that maybe didn't need a specialist from another area, and it would free up a lot of people. Now, the problem with that, of course, is we've all heard on the radio over the last, oh, I don't know, 18 months, the massive shortage in nursing and the migration south, unfortunately, of a lot of our nurses going down south where they can make more money and and have a better quality of life. So there's there's massive problems in the system, Mm. which isn't new, but... um, yeah, I, I think our colleagues in medicine are doing some great work. Again, I think I don't think it's the profession as a whole. I think there's mm. individuals clearly dropping the ball, but there's chiropractors dropping the ball too. Sure. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so being a nurse practitioner, I find them amazing. Like I'm am working with one right now and I find their approach just refreshing because they do a very long intake. They take their time to understand things and yeah, it's an interesting idea for them to be maybe that first point um, of contact or a triager, and then yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. Um, in terms of like what you're seeing, I mean, you know, I feel like people are referring to online even more so these days for for medical advice or fitness tips or whatever. And I have no doubt that you've probably come across patients who are just like, I tried this thing and it messed me all up or whatever it might be but what what comes across your your table and and into your room into your um clinical room as uh you're just like i wish these fitness trends or or these approaches just didn't really exist like what really bothers you these days from what you see online
1: yeah well dr google as i call him Mm. and um and all of his colleagues, the Instagrammers and the Facebookers, and mm. it's uh, amazing that they're so confident to give out advice without knowing who the individual is in front of them. Mm. Um, one of the things I do with all my patients is I go through a four-page informed consent. It's actually a, a spin-off of the one that we had at the university. Mm. And I sent it to my college and I said, by the way, I'm not using your one pager, I'm using my four pager, and here's all the informed consent that I want to give. And they Mm -hmm. took one look at it and said, wow, that's phenomenal. Uh, Go ahead, use yours. So I go through a four page document outlining everything that they can expect from that three hour assessment and then the ongoing follow up. And um, it, it never ceases to amaze me that patients are somewhat surprised that the process takes that long some of them some of them who aren't as familiar with backfit pro and the back mechanic book mm. and some of the other resources and i said well you know i haven't got a clue what to tell you about your back right now but in an hour and a half from now i'm going to have some very specific guidelines for you to follow mm. and and hypotheses to test and then we're going to test those and we're going to have a very clear indication of some guidelines for you moving forward. But right now, I don't know what to tell you about your back and you know, the trend is, is pervasive in kinesiology. If I can put it that all under that umbrella Mm. and nutrition and personal training and fitness and you know, there's so much out there. And um, if I could tell, you know, your audience, one thing, um, anything you get for free is probably, there's a reason it's free. Mm. Um, it's probably not worth much or it might be worth something to to one segment of the population mm. and totally not only not worth much but dangerous and damaging to another population so um i guess consumer beware with what you're consuming on the internet and what uh, an internet guru is telling you about and and then figure out you know what their training is and what their perspective and background is Beyond the hype, mm. because if there's not um, some credentials to back it up, then I, I would be pretty weary about it. For sure. It takes a, a long time to hone your craft and and to be really good at what you do, and that goes from being a master car mechanic or a master clinician. Um, and in the world where everything's instantaneous, you know we get. Um, students who are new to back mechanic and, and taking our courses. And one of the first questions out of their mouth is, uh, how do I become a master clinician? Mm. And unfortunately, the answer is often a lot of years of really hard work and dedication because you're not going to get there overnight. And, uh, yeah, um, it, it's no different than what all of our mothers used to tell us, work hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Work hard and good things will happen.
0: When you're, you know, you spoke at the start of um, start of this question, just around that tailored approach, and and how can you know how can you get that from, from an online source or uh, through Instagram or whatever? Um, but are there are there anything, um, are there any sort of just complete sort of no nos for you, like when it comes to, um, I don't know. I guess we could talk about the spine in particular, but. You know, I think about uh, traction, for instance, right? You see that in, uh, you know, the idea of traction, and especially for those who have disc herniations or such, right? I mean, for someone who doesn't understand how the spine works, I mean, the logic seems pretty simple to me, right? Like, you know, you stretch things out and you open things in, the disc creeps back, and it's all good, right? You're ready to go again. But, like, just thinking about those kind of things, like, like it doesn't matter, you don't have to... Um, required a tailored approach there are just some just bad things and and i mean we we know from Stu's stuff in terms of like you know don't do sit-ups right the guy who killed sit-ups sort of thing we know like those kind of things are just no-nos for pretty much anybody but um yeah what comes to mind for you like are there any sort of fitnessy tools or gimmicks or things that you've seen that are just like people should just stay away from that entirely
1: well uh i would say anything that's not specifically geared to that individual. And so, you know, you look at an exercise and you think, um, well, who might benefit from that? And then you look at who the audience is of the, of the individual spreading it through the internet and you think, well, that's not even close to their audience, you know? They've, mm. there's, there's some exercises that I have no problem giving to the Olympic lifter I saw this morning that I wouldn't dream about getting to the fifty-year-old banker who I'm going mm. to see tomorrow. And so, you know, Stu and I have always said the the tools of back pain are pretty simple, mm. but knowing where and when and how to apply them is the hard part. Um, so I don't know if I would write anything off right out of the gate. Mm. There's some fundamental rules about the spine that you can certainly hedge your bets on. So rules like if you can minimize spine power, that would be to your advantage. And so for the listener, spine power is force times velocity or the speed at which you're moving. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a high amount of load, you're carrying something that's relatively heavy. If you do a lot of twisting and turning motions while carrying it, you have a high degree of spine power. And what we see on an MRI, if you come in and that's your loading history, is annular tears around the edge of the annulus, which is part Mm -hmm. of the disc around the outside. The thick, fibrous tissues that hold the disc together, they tear apart in that rotational um, loading pattern. But there's times when an athlete, for instance, has to rotate as part of their Sports, so you yeah. can't say that you can never rotate but certainly how you dose it and, and limit it and, and, you know how much of your hips get involved my whole phd thesis was on the hips and the linkage between mm. actually spine problems and knee problems and, and stu and i i think both look at it the same way as the hip is kind of the keystone so if you know how a one of those old arches is made with with big mm stone blocks the keystone mm-hmm. is the one right in the middle that has mm-hmm. the compression going down ideally through the bottom stone at the bottom with the right angle that just puts the whole archway together and if you don't have the keystone in place the whole thing crumbles mm. well the hips do that in a lot of ways for the spine and the knee and so we think of it as a bit of a keystone in that whole kinetic and kinematic chain from the knee to the hip to the spine but it's hard for me to, you know, there's always a, well, well what about this, for instance? So to make a, a blanket statement across the board, is, is it's difficult.
0: So tell me about how, like, the hips and the, and the knees connect. And, and I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, I know a lot of the focus um, is to, like you talked about, you know, you, spine power is probably something that we just – want to avoid obviously some activities you just can't prevent them but and so transfer a lot of that load and that power to the hips right but what's the consequence of that I guess on the knees and is there one because I mean we're hearing more and more I guess in the more mainstream public about how we need to let our knees not be so restricted let them go over your toes and not have, you know, not just simply rely on that hip hinge, but just, you know, let let some of that transfer over to your knees and let them go beyond your toes. So just wondering about that interaction and, and whether one is of consequence to the other and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, well let me narrow down the discussion a little bit so I can sure. be more specific. If we leave it too broad, then it's hard for me to make some yeah. specific comments. But first of all, loading at end range for any joint is an issue, whether Mm. it's the hip, the knee, or the spine, because Mm. at the end of the day, you're gonna be loading the passive tissues quite Mm. a bit. So as we Mm. get to end range, everything starts to stretch. Our muscles stretch, the length tension relationship between the muscles uh, is at its maximum. And so we're getting a lot of passive muscle force. We're also getting the ligaments and joint capsules starting to stretch and respond. Mm. And the cool thing about the hip is that for a lot of us, even us guys with Celtic backgrounds, which we can talk about differentiating them from someone with an Eastern European background um, or an Asian background, um, still have a lot of range of motion in our hips and usually Mm. more than enough to do, say, rotational sports like golf or or baseball with quite a bit of hip power Mm. and still nowhere near end range. Um, And so when you're loading a synovial joint through its normal range it's relying on active muscle strength and stiffness Mm. um when you start getting to end ranges you'll see on you know different social media accounts well it's okay to you know bring your knees to your chest or you know get a maximum hip flexion disregarding spine posture and and all that or go and do some deep squats and and and, you know um put your ass to grass as, it, mm. as mm. You know, they commonly talk yeah. about. Um, end range knee flexion, uh, going after full um, calf on thigh contact. Mm. The lab just down the hall from us, uh, after you left Waterloo, mm. there was some knee biomechanists coming in trying to model how that actually pulls the joint apart
0: mm. and
1: stretches the capsule even more because now there's a fulcrum between the calf muscle and the thigh muscle and the knee pries itself apart. And so there's a lot of mechanisms that, that are starting to become understood. And there's definitely a lot of mechanisms that we do understand that um, says end range loading is probably not a good thing at, mm-hmm. at nearly any joint. And so that's sort of a general comment. But more specifically, um, if I take an example of a trade off between, say, a front squat and a back squat. Right. The line of drive shifts between the front squat and the back squat, but so does the distribution of load and force because as you migrate the the load further forward, mm-hmm. you may take some stress off the knee, but you're now putting it on the hip and the back through an extensor motion.
0: Mm.
1: Whereas when you're in a front squat and you move the line of force back and you sit a little bit more upright with your body, you decrease the moment on your back and hip, but you increase the moment. Mm -hmm. on your knee so there's a trade-off with everything Um, there's never going to be a win-win scenario you're going to optimize something you're going to you know try to minimize both or maximize one and minimize the other and again it's not that the front squat or the back squat is a preferred exercise for everyone there's specific reasons to have a back squat or a front squat and whether or not you want to develop hip extension or whether you want more knee extension, it's very sport and situation specific again. Another example of that interconnection between the knee and the hip is with female athletes, particularly basketball and volleyball and Mm -hmm. soccer with non-contact ACL injuries. In basketball, the rate of non-contact ACL injury, if you have a controlled study and look at NCAA men and NCAA Mm -hmm. women, they have as much as an eight times greater incidence of non-contact ACL injuries. Mm. And that comes down to a difference between the neurological patterns that activate glute versus the quad. Mm. And if you get your knee in what we call a dynamic valgus position, so the foot points outward relative to the knee and the hip, um, you think of it as a hockey stick, if you can visualize that in in your mind, If that knee moves medially towards the inside and the foot's planted on the ground, you're now creating a large bending moment Mm. around that knee. If you go ahead and activate the quad first, you're going to stress the ACL ligament.
0: Mm.
1: However, if you externally rotate as you brought up with the glutes and activate glute max and align the knee and then create the extension through the knee joint, you will bring the stress off the ACL joint and Mm -hmm. into the muscles. So you mitigate the risk for an ACL injury. So the downstream um, isn't always upfront and obvious. And I think that's uh, where a lot of this online presence of online training uh, fails to go down that road of, well, what's the long-term effects of what I'm recommending and having, you know, broad-facing uh, opinions on if I was to tell everyone they could benefit from one exercise it would probably be walking mm-hmm. that that would be an example of a wonderful exercise that the vast majority of the population would do quite well on cardiovascularly mm. we know that believe it or not walking is a pretty good cardiovascular exercise mm. in terms of joint mecha- joint mechanics it's not a lot of stress on your spine or your knees or your hips it's well within tolerance. And it's good for the ticker, it's good for the joints, it's good for bone health, it's good for balance, it's good for so many things. But there's so many exercises that are really sport specific that have become so popularized. And I think, well, why on earth would anyone recommend that across a large group of people? And I don't wanna, as you know, I don't wanna center anyone out or name any particular exercise, because I, there's no bad or good exercise. It, it just comes back down to who's your audience and why are you making the recommendation? No,
0: and that, and that's that's perfectly fine. You know, I, I think sometimes um, uh, some yeah, just some online trainers or or whoever they make it so they make it seem so easy for people to understand certain things. Like, so for example, on like the letting your knees go past your toes. I mean, you can. You know there are many common movements where your knees just naturally go over your toes, right? And and that happens. I studied the jump, right? As much as you know, we focused on you know it was hips versus knees, and and but as you're jumping, there's no way of avoiding your knees going past your toes, right? The amount of um, the amount of um, power that's being generated from your hips is naturally going to shift those knees forward, right? And so I think then people just generalize that and be like, well, look, these movements, your knees go over your toes, so let's just always do that and our trainers have been telling us well don't let you do when you're doing a lunge don't lunge where your knees go over your toes um so they make it they make it seem like okay that can be so applicable for for everyone but what i'm hearing from you is that you know that might be catered to a certain audience maybe there's a place for that but there might be some audiences that might not benefit from that
1: yeah you got to start looking if we're talking about training about dosage and volume mm. and, and Weight, you know, if mm. you're going over with body weight versus going over with, say, 200 kilos on your back, yeah. those are two very different scenarios. So the specificity continues to drive down the the, the answer to give you a specific answer. But it's very difficult to be to, to get an answer with too many generalities, and that's I guess that's my issue with with what I see, and, and it's my issue because I see it with my mm. patients. They come in and they say. You know, I was watching this, or I, I got this advice on on TikTok or Instagram or yeah. Facebook, and I think, my goodness, no wonder you're in quite the predicament, because you're just... And then, you know, they say, well, I've got two friends that it was okay for, and that might be true. You know, they may have been fine, but they didn't have your specific history and this underlying back problem that you've been sort of just floating there underneath the surface. So... To me, it all comes down to specificity, specificity, specificity.
0: Uh, you know, I'm gonna start shifting away here. Uh, we always do these two final questions for every guest. I'll get to that in a second. But a couple of things. Um, you've seen, you know, I'm sure hundreds of patients or so, or whatever it might be. Um, what continue? What humbles you about, of of by your patients? Like, what's something that you just you know, you're know, you a wealth of knowledge, you're a master clinician, you work with Stu McGill, all these sort of things, but what, what continues to humble you about people and the patients that you see?
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, I sort of, you did give me a heads up on that question coming, uh, and thank goodness, because I, I had some time to think about it. So the answer might come off as quick, but it's only because I've had uh, about 24 hours to think about it. If I told you I wasn't uh, a little bit nervous, a little bit palm sway before every patient, uh, I'd, I'd be lying to you. Mm. I'm constantly trying to improve and get better with every patient that I see. And it sounds like a cliche, and, and Stu said it before as well, but uh, you know, the last patient I see will be the best clinical experience I can give. Mm. Because I feel like I'm constantly um, improving, constantly reading people better, constantly providing more accurate advice, and, and learning from them as much as I they're learning from me and uh, to me that as well as their side of the coin uh, I am constantly touched by their stories of how they're Mm -hmm. dealing with and been mismanaged through the system and uh, They feel like no one listens to them and gives them enough time and and the psychological burden on many of the patients is tremendous to break through Mm. and um, sometimes that's very quick to do because their guard goes down when they realize I'm it for the entire morning this guy's only gonna spend time with me and sometimes that's enough and sometimes it takes me nearly 40 minutes just to break them down a little bit so that they're honest and trusting and, and I've got sort of their attention and even Well, uh, two patients today I had, one I told you about, the young fella, and the other Mm. patient had heard what I had told them, but then been given, in my opinion, some terrible advice. So Mm. the clinician got the assessment right, but then gave the most, what I thought was ridiculous treatment plan, Mm. given the diagnosis. He was recreating the injury mechanism that he identified
0: Mm.
1: as part of the therapy plan. And I thought, well, no wonder now this patient hears what they've heard from one of their, I think he'd only been to about six or eight clinicians,
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but had heard this similar story. And he said, you know, he said, you know, all credit to you, Ed, you've put it together a lot clearer than they did. But, I, you know, I've sort of heard a tale of this before. And my concern is, you're going to give me some exercises that just aren't going to do anything about it. Mm. And, it, you know, I was taken back and gutted, not because it was insulting to me that he wasn't gonna, you know, buy right in, but just that I could totally understand how this was gonna be a huge problem for him because here he is again hearing a story from the clinician and is this one the right one? And and so their personal experiences uh, are completely humbling and they continue to come up in different scenarios um, all the time and uh, you know, I, I feel for the patients just trying to get some help and get back to their lives. And you know, a lot of these patients get lumped into boxes after they've been. You know, it's kind of like a red flag to some of my colleagues. Oh, he's, he's doctor shopping, you know, and he's been from one clinic. To, well, no, he's not yeah. doctor shopping. He's just trying to get better, or she's just trying yeah. to get better. And uh, you know, it's that—that's the most humbling part, I think, of mm. of my weeks and days is just. The stories from patients it's um i I will admit i need a vacation every now and then just to. just to manage all the uh the the stories and 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 take a break and recharge because um not that i don't love what i do but it's hard to listen to some of the stories where they're so frustrated and you know couldn't be they couldn't be some of the nicer nicest people in the world but they're just struggling with this uh back trouble and or neck trouble and they just don't know what to do about it
0: yeah it's it's uh it's wonderful to hear that that same that initial drive or desire to work with people and your care for people i mean after all this time still holds true and um yeah that example in particular of, of you feeling gutted not because they like they were insulting you, but like that just couldn't connect the four them. Right. Like that person didn't feel connected to what you're saying is very interesting. Um, are you okay if we pivot to our final two questions? Yeah.
1: I'll just say this. If I yeah. don't feel like that, it's time to retire.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Totally. Yep. Yeah. That's a, that's great awareness. Cause I think some people would just continue on. So that's, uh, that's awesome. Um, so we always ask these two questions of our guests. Our first question is five for dinner. So, um, dead or alive, who would you want to have uh, supper with and, and would you have them together or individually?
1: Well, funny enough, we were <laughs> having this conversation and, and I didn't do five. I said the one person you'd want to have dinner with uh, was Stu. So now I've got to listen into his podcast <laughs> and, and find out who his five were. Um, I, I, it's a good thing you gave me a little heads up on this one too because I needed it. And the twist on the question of whether or not I'd have it together, i got to give some thought to that. So normally when I'm asked for one, um, I uh, and I don't want to miss anyone, so I'm just going back to my notes. I'm yeah. cheating here on your on your uh, question. Um, there it is. Um, my first. Normally people ask me one, so I I I say, well, I don't have one. I have two. And it's when you hear the names, it's going to be kind of interesting. But it's for the same reason. But they're in very different worlds. And it's Barack Obama hmm. and Tiger Woods.
0: Hmm.
1: And most people know that I'm my big sports are skiing, golf, and, and volleyball. Okay. And so they think, oh well, Tiger Woods. Of course, it's because he's you know the greatest golfer of all time, arguably. Totally. Yeah. If you're my age, you think so. If you're a little bit older, then you think it's Jack. He's the right? reason
0: why I started playing golf was Tiger, for sure.
1: Yeah. yeah. So. It actually has nothing to do with that, and it actually has the same reason I want to have uh, dinner with Barack Obama. Mm. They both overcame amazing systemic and situational obstacles just because of their race. Mm. And you know both of those things, to be the best golfer in the world, arguably in history, certainly for a long stretch of time on the planet, and to become the president of the United States, are immeasurable, uh, you know, remarkable challenges to to mount, and then to have the cards stacked against you, arguably because of systemic racism, mm-hmm. was phenomenal. So my questions wouldn't be so much about that, but and you got a little bit. I don't know if you, if you're a Tiger fan, you you heard his Hall of Fame induction speech, mm. and you know the story about. Um, where's the first tee and what's the course record? Mm. Like I was watching that, I was in total tears. Like I, I could just imagine going to a golf course, not being allowed to go into the clubhouse. Mm. So th- I think both of those guys have some amazing individual experiences that I, I just can't even fathom. So those two guys would be on the list for sure. And probably together. And now if mm. you're saying I can have separate dinners, then... Yeah, uh,
0: it's your your setup, man. Your then kid. the queen would be
1: the next one. The
0: queen, okay. Yeah,
1: the, the, the recently passed um, mm. Queen Elizabeth II would be 70-year reign. She saw some amazing things mm. through her reign and incredible changes. And um, the more I'm learning about her, the more she had a pretty good sense of humor. Mm. Um, so I think that would be rather interesting. And then... Uh, I think the next two uh, might be more obvious or predicted um, people, but I think if I can have dinner at separate times with them again, because I think they'd be very uh, big big discussions that would easily o- try to overshadow each other, hmm. would be Neil deGrasse Tyson and hmm. Jordan Peterson.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And so you can imagine that a, a three-way dinner between those guys might not go over well. They, they, yeah. They would... Uh, they would, they would try to get a word and edgewise on each other, but I think it would be, they're phenomenal minds of our, our generation, um, and I would love to meet either one of them for dinner. Yeah, yeah,
0: very cool. So and there, are there's you, my five. Yeah, are you, uh, with Jordan Peterson, is that someone that you listen to regularly, or? Yeah, I or, think the
1: man's absolutely brilliant.
0: Interesting, okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, certainly, uh controversial but if you get past the initial controversy um he puts forward a, an incredible argument the style which he he debates is also rather uh interesting mm. uh, i find the man though he i know he's controversial i, I um I, I think he's on a an impressive intellect mm.
0: yeah cool why well, at uh So, Tiger Woods, Barack Obama together, and did you say the Queen, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Jordan Pearson, the three of them together?
1: No, no, they'd all have to be separate. Oh, they all have to be separate. Yeah, yeah. And Neil deGrasse Tyson, I don't know, like, my background is skiing. Like, I Mm -hmm. love it. Um, And he just came up with this this little analogy, and it was on TikTok of all the places after bashing TikTok (laughs) users, um, that if you took the earth and shrunk it down to the size of... uh, pool ball a cue Mm. ball it would be smoother than anything that we can machine Mm. so if you take the largest mountain in the the deepest part of the ocean you can't even feel it if you could have some kind of mythical monster that was the size that he could just hold the earth Mm. he would think it was or she or it whatever it is could would think it was like the smoothest thing ever invented man-made yeah, check it out it's <laughs> mind-blowing and that kind of stuff just like you think about it and then he explains it to you yeah about, you know how it's like okay well that's like eight miles difference and you know it's this many miles across in the earth and so if you phenomenal guy where does he come up with this stuff
0: i, I hadn't heard about that one so I? I gotta listen to that well yeah. are you following the james webb telescope like these images that we're getting back like you space guy or
1: um, I'm not a space guy so much as like I, I enjoy how Neil deGrasse Tyson teaches science to people. Okay. okay. So um, uh, uh, actually, my brother-in-law's friends, a, a big space guy. You've probably seen him on TV. Um, he's a professor at York University, and CTV has him on all the time. Oh, okay. Um, he's a space guy. I, I don't mm. want to put myself in that category, mm. but I'm definitely a fan of how Neil deGrasse Tyson can teach science to people who might otherwise say i'm not a scientist or i'm not interested in science and and just those examples like you know the earth is actually smoother than a cue ball if you could shrink it down it's like Mm. that kind of exciting you know tidbit gets someone interested to you know look up and understand a little bit more about math and numbers and how it all works so i find that really compelling
0: yeah cool uh last question uh beyond the circle of life what do you know for sure
1: yeah, that's a tough one too. I don't know how much I, I you couldn't have given me enough time to prepare for that question. Um, well, I'm pretty certain on gravity. Um, but that's kind of fun. You know, mm. you know in science that we don't ever really prove something to be true. We just prove the opposite. Mm. Well, good science,
0: yeah. Good science would try to do that. (laughs) There's a lot of bad science in there.
1: How many things am I certain of? Not many. You know the old joke, death and taxes, but you already eliminated half that equation. So it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. You can easily get caught in a rabbit hole. And I'm trying to Jordan Peterson my way all the way down through both sides of the answer. (laughs) And uh, perhaps I'm coming up short because I don't know if I have a good answer for that one.
0: That's okay. That's okay. I mean, some people have said nothing; like they don't. Uh, yeah. And 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 maybe that's uh, maybe that's the case. I certainly thought. I remember when I first started doing my masters, I thought I knew a whole bunch about kinesiology, and I realized I knew nothing when you start working with people like Stu and all these brilliant minds. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you, I'd be curious offline if you if you have an answer to that. Uh, I would love well, to and on that
1: over. note, like you just mentioned, Stu, and what do you know for sure? Um. A lot of people knew a lot of things about spines before Mm. Stu created a paradigm shift. Mm. And I remember, you'll know, Richard Wells Mm -hmm. talked to us about paradigm shifts. And he said, in our area, you will live through one paradigm shift, if you're lucky, in your area of study. Mm. So for me, it was spine biomechanics and you as well. And Stu was the paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. The whole notion of measuring stability completely changed how we understood how the spine functioned and why it's not, you know, a ball and socket joint, right? Why it, why spine power is an issue versus hip power. So, you know, we're one paradigm shift away from realizing we didn't know what we thought we knew.
0: For sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I really enjoyed this conversation. It's, it's great getting to know you a little bit more. Um, I hope you enjoyed your I hope you enjoyed yourself today and uh yeah it was just uh it was it's fun to just uh get to know the person who's kind of you know like i said a lot of waterloo students uh would see you and they're like that's awesome that uh you get to get to work with Stu and, and work back with pro and carve your own path for that matter right like i mean um Stu's laid this amazing groundwork um but it's for other people to build off of and um, it's great to see you doing that and so while i don't really quite know you definitely i feel like from from being part of the Stu lab i think we can all say we're proud of you and and and, and uh, enjoying to see the work that you're doing there so so congratulations on that we'll put all all of ed's info and in. by the way ed how can somebody find you um if they if they wanted to get a hold of you or if they wanted to seek your consulting services is that sort of a hard ordeal or what does that look like
1: no uh, that's pretty easy to do you can go to Cambridge Sport and Spine um, and look me up Cambridge Sport and Spine dot com or you can go to uh, email me at Cambridge Sport and Spine at gmail dot com or you can find me on Stu's website BackFit Pro and it'll link to that that contact information that I just gave and um, yeah that's probably the easiest way to find me
0: okay great so we'll put all that information uh, in the show notes about Ed and and check them out. Check out Backlit Pro. And I think there was a lot of great um, thinking in this in this episode, um, really about like, hey, if you're if you're looking at these online, uh, you know, fitness uh, professionals and and people are offering advice, just just think about sort of what works for you in your situation, and and uh, really need to take that tailored approach. So. Thank you again, Ed, for for making time uh, on a a Monday evening. I'm sure you have better things to do, but I appreciate uh, you talking to me today.
1: No, thank you, Rupesh. I I enjoyed the talk and the the interview. It was fantastic and masterfully done. So um, thanks for taking a a rookie and uh, making it very easy for me. So thank you and and best of luck. I think i got to figure out where I can tune into your podcasts.
0: (laughs) You bet. All right, everyone. We'll uh, wait for a couple more weeks, and we'll get another episode. So, talk to you all later. Bye.